Good evening. My name is Barbara Heritage. I'm the Associate Director and Curator of Collections here at Rare Book School. And it's my pleasure to introduce Meredith McGill tonight. Meredith is an Associate Professor of English at Rutgers University, where she specializes in 19th century American literature, the history of the book in American culture, law and literature, literary theory and media, and media history. Meredith is the author of American Literature and the Culture of Reprinting, 1837 to 1853. Published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2003, her book was acclaimed as a major study that should be required reading for specialists in the field. That was Bob Levine for American Studies. It was also hailed as a penetrating analysis that illuminates not only the logic of reprinting, but also the idiosyncratic nature of texts themselves and that was Mar Marta Werner for Textual Cultures. Meredith is the editor of two collections of essays, The Traffic in Poems, 19th Century Poetry, and Transatlantic Exchange, published by Rutgers University Press in 2008, and also Taking Liberties with the Author. The latter is available as an ACLS Humanities ebook, available for free via their site, and I had pleasure perusing that today. The introduction was really just wonderful, and I encourage everyone to take a look uh, Meredith um, has published widely in a variety of journals, and those include American Literary History, 19th Century Literature, American Literature, and Book History. At Rutgers, Meredith has directed the Rutgers English Graduate Program, the Center for Cultural Analysis, and the School of Arts and Sciences Digital Humanities Initiative. She was recently invited by Princeton University's Council of the Humanities to serve as a Class of 1932 Fellow in Princeton's Department of English and Center for Digital Humanities during the spring semester of 2016. Rare Book School is very honored to have Meredith speaking for us this evening. Please welcome her. So, the blank screen became live. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a real pleasure and an honor to be here. I've mentioned to a couple of folks that uh, um, I was a student at Rare Book School the last year uh, that it was at Columbia, uh, and I enrolled in Michael Winship's class, which was then called Descriptive Bibliography of the Machine Press Period. And from that, uh, that fire hose of, uh, of thought, uh, um, and I was exposed to so many things I hadn't thought about before. I really uh, can't imagine thinking outside of that framework uh, that was established then. I want to thank also Barbara Heritage and Jeremy Dibble, uh, uh, for uh, all the um, uh, warm welcome and the um, sort of flawless organization of my visit. Um, just want to say uh, a few things about this talk before I launch into it. Um, I was puzzled about what to speak about, knowing from my experience as a student at Rare Book School uh, that this is an audience comprised, uh, drawn from a variety of fields, uh, rare book librarians, book dealers, scholars from multiple disciplines, uh, and basically uh, what draws us all together is we're curious people fascinated by books and printed objects of all kinds. Um, despite the fact that I use the technical, and I'll talk some about the technical term, bibliographic term format in my talk, I just want to mention that I don't see this as a talk inside the field of bibliography as much as one that tries to, move, to radiate outwards uh, from uh, bibliography to suggest the pertinence of the concept of format to literary critical scholarship. So there's going to be some stuff in here on 19th century poetry and lyric theory, but I do also promise some uh, uh, screenshots of uh, uh, various printed objects uh, and the ratio of um, 
unillustrated talk to illustrated talk moves towards slides towards the end. So if you're drifting off, uh, I promise the slides will pick up in pace. Um, I also want to say that I was thinking uh, today about Barbara Heritage's comments and her welcome uh, on humanist tendency to understand the text uh, as our object of study rather than some material incarnation of the text. What I want to suggest tonight is that there's an unusual pressure put on poetry to be imagined as somehow immaterial. Uh, what might happen if we used interpretive categories drawn from bibliography to reshape our sense of the field, the history of poetry? This is a bit tricky when it comes to antebellum American poetry, since so much of it is in cheap formats. Uh, it, it moves beyond bibliographers' customary attention to books. Uh, so at the risk of raising Fredrickson Bauer's ghost, uh, always a risk here, um, I will be loosening the term uh, somewhat from its technical specificity, but in fundamental ways I want to demonstrate how forms of bibliographic attention might enable us to tell a, a quite different story about 19th century American poetry. So that by way of preface, let me jump in. In recent years, literary critics have made great strides in recovering the careers and writing of poets who had been eclipsed by the influential 20th century afterlives of Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson, our two <coughs> proto-modernist 19th century poets. Curiously, however, this recovery has proceeded with slender reference to the print formats in which 19th century poems appear. Our sense of the diversity and reach of 19th century American poetry has expanded considerably, but our understanding of the complex materiality of these poems has not. Uh, likewise, with a few important exceptions, and I'm thinking here of the work of Joan Shelley Rubin and the foundational scholarship of William Charvat, our sweeping histories of the book in America have taken little notice of poetry as a factor in the rise of mass print, despite the strong presence of poems in a wide range of popular print formats, and despite the fact that many mid-19th century writers and readers assumed that the very possibility of a democratic culture depended on the fate of American verse. Annabelle Americans cared a, cared a lot about poetry and whether there will be an American poetry. Uh, not so much. Uh, eventually they cared about the novel, uh, but, in, but a lot of the energy around literary nationalism circulates around poetry. We have rich explorations of American novelists' struggle to articulate national identity for a community of citizens newly imagined as readers, but we have very little analysis of American poetry's implication in the culture wars of the early republic. This is not simply a matter of our overlooking a genre on the way to too hasty conclusions about the market for books. Rather, I think it represents a version of history written from the perspective of the victors. In this case, the ultimately successful adaptation of prose forms, such as the novel, to the new mass media environment. Tracking the effects of mass print on a low cultural genre, the novel, produces a strikingly different critical na narrative than weighing the struggle of a high cultural genre, such as that of poetry, to adapt to new conditions. Why is poetry notably absent from our critical accounts of the simultaneous emergence in the US of a national and a mass culture? Some of the problem can be traced to the ease with which our two now major poets lend themselves to one-sided accounts of the relations between poetry and print. On the one hand, we have Walt Whitman troping like mad uh, on, um, on the conventions of the print public sphere and insisting that intimacy is perfectly compatible with the depersonalization of print. And this is taken from the poem that gets called Song of Occupations. How is it with you? I was chilled with the cold types and cylinder and wet paper between us. 
sexy print, print moment in Whitman's uh, 55 Leaves of Grass, right? I wish to pass through the context of bodies and souls. So that's Whitman. And on the other hand, we have Annalee Dickinson, isolate genius, cultivating private networks of circulation for obscure verses that continue to resist our print conventions. Our major 19th century poets offer two easy allegories of either full immersion in or complete withdrawal from the world of print, shameless self-promotion or a willful hermeticism. Our perception of the multiple shifting relations of genre and medium gets forestalled or displaced by a binary distinction between the utterly private and the fully public poet, a distinction that maps all too easily onto the, onto the ideas of manuscript and print. And I do think you know, literary critics have tried for some time to remind us that Dickinson's handwritten poems circulated within a public, uh, but the key, the, the, that binary opposition between the two media continues to structure a lot of thought about poetry and media. It doesn't help that these twin allegories for the relations between poetry and print get identified in the 20th century with the avant-garde. At least since the late 19th century, poets and critics have come to associate avant-garde poetics with the self-consciousness of the materiality of writing, a self-consciousness that is telegraphed by Stefan Mallarmé's free play with typographic conventions and with the space of the page. And here I'll just give you a couple of pages uh, from uh, the 1897 on coup de day. Uh, in this work, Mallarmé seeks to estrange readers um, from the print conventions they take for granted in their ordinary reading. For Mallarmé, poetry's self-consciousness of its own materiality marks its deviation from ordinary language, its deliberate inaccessibility. Mallarmé redeploys print conventions. Typography here competes with poetic syntax. The poem unfolds across the space of the, pa space of the page and not the line. And yet this experiment nonetheless depends on the strong alignment of high cultural poetry with a book format. The association of modernist innovation with an extraordinary embrace of, withdrawal from, or transformation of print continues to obscure from view the ordinary history of poets' relations uh, uh, with print. And here I've just got a few quick looks at the continued avant-garde uh, play with Mallarmé's experiment, uh, you know, xing out the uh, uh, um, xing out th those lines uh, and uh, then cutting them out. And finally, those of you who know Jonathan Safran Forrest's Tree of Codes have seen this play with the book Poetry in the Book, avant-garde poetry in the book format. Um, let's see if I've got a blank. Okay. Another factor in the disappearance of poetry from book history and book history from poetic analysis is literary critics' working assumption that the history of poetic genres can be understood as wholly separate from and unaffected by the history of media. Virginia Jackson has taught us to see the late 19th century publication of Dickinson's manuscripts as a crucial step in what she calls lyricization, the process by which a range of poetic genres with various social and public purposes get winnowed and recast as a single genre, the lyric, the poetic genre that makes the otherwise inaccessible musings of a private self available for private reading. Uh, for Jackson, Dickinson becomes an all too convenient tool for the solidification of this idea of lyric in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In Jackson's account, while 18th century poetic genres such as odes, satires, elegies, and hymns carried along with them some sense of their social occasion, as she calls this the stipulative fu uh, function of poetic genres, lyric readings promise of interpersonal immediacy requires the overcoming of mediation. Jackson points to Helen Vendler's 1997 book on Shakespeare's sonnets as a case in point. I'll just give you a screenshot. I don't have a better copy of it, but this is the uh, 
AB, ABE books ad uh, uh, for, the, for this volume. In this book, Wendler champions the dominant view that, and I'm quoting Wendler here, that the lyric, though it may refer to the social, remains the genre that directs its mimesis towards the performance of the mind in solitary speech. Wendler drives home her point, and Jackson argues ultimately undermines it, by including at the back of her book a CD recording of herself reading 65 of the sonnets, a supplementary remediation designed to reinforce the fantasy of lyrics provision of unmediated access to poetic voice. Which is why I want you to see the irony here, right? That in poetry and in digital recording, the production of vocal immediacy requires the intervention of media, which then gets uh, um, somehow erased from our critical vocabulary. We perform it uh, in uh, reprinting and reissuing work and then erase it from our uh, literary criticism. In the grip of these norms, these norms of lyric reading, we might forget, although Jackson does not, that John Stuart Mill's influential, influential definition of lyric relies on a print metaphor that speaks volumes about his assumptions about British poetry's field of circulation. Mill famously compares the lyric to eloquence, drawing a sharp distinction between speech that is heard, that's eloquence, uh, uh, and writing that relies on the conceit that it is speech that is overheard the lyric. Mill exemplifies this distinction by contrasting a soliloquy that happens on the stage with one that we find in a book of poems, and here's our rare book school moment, printed on hot-pressed paper and sold at a bookseller's shop. That's one kind of book, right? That's not all books. That is, an expensive volume made with pages manufactured so as to display the ink and fine detail, the kind of book designed to be sold at a high price to elite readers. Does the process of lyricization then have a necessary material support? Is there an idea of the book underwriting this idea of the lyric? What would happen if in addition to exposing the ruse of address by which we imagine poetry to be singularly unmediated, what if we undid the presumption of elite book publication on which it appears to rest? I zero in on Mill's example of a book printed on hot press paper and sold at the bookseller's shop because of its centrality to lyric theory, but also because it is entirely unrepresentative of the publishing format and means of circulation of the majority of verse produced and sold in the, in the antebellum US. While some volumes of poetry were indeed published in fine editions to be sold to the gentry, most poetry circulated in inexpensive editions aimed at a general reader, uh, and it's, they, it circulated in broadsides, pamphlets, newspapers, and periodicals that were both sold on the street uh, they're available in bookshops, uh, sold on the street, uh, and sent to subscribers through the mail. Ra rather than rescuing poetry from these conditions of publication and restoring it to the book format, that's what we usually do in, when we study poetry, right? We order up the anthology for our students. Or, you know, if we're invested in a poet, we uh, help collaborate in producing a, uh, an author-centered edition, right? A standard edition of that poem, that poet's works. But that's not how it circulated. Uh, in the time of uh, antebellum poetry, in the time of its uh, initial publication. Uh, what would happen if we refused to take material text out of the picture and considered the rise of mass print as an event in the history of poetry? I only have time this evening to give you a brief glimpse of what that would look like, and I'm going to do so by taking what may initially look like a crazy detour or swerve away from bibliography, uh, I want to make a case for the importance of format as a category of analysis, uh, as a category of analysis in particular for literary and cultural history, by invoking Jonathan Stern's recent work, uh, um, 
MP3, the meaning of a format, his uh, recent work on the MP3 file. So bear with me with this. Uh, I'm going to get away from books for a moment just to sketch the larger, more capacious way in which I want to think about format. In singling out this now ubiquitous digital file format, Jonathan Stern advocates a turn, he's addressing media historians here, uh, he advocates a turn away from large-scale concepts like media to embrace what he calls the smaller registers of analysis that pertain, and I quote, to the changing formations of media, the context of their reception, the conjunctions that shape their sensual characteristics, and the institutional politics in which they are enmeshed. He really sounds like a book historian, right? Stern's study takes inspiration from the compression techniques that have made the easily transmissible low-bandwidth MP3 files so successful. And if you're an audiophile, you don't like the MP3 file, right? But if you're just a Joe, Joe uh, I, iTunes consumer like me, uh, you think it's fine, right? Uh, calling the MP3 file format a triumph of distribution, Stern reminds us that the MP3 file sacrifices audio quality in the interest of transmissibility. As you may know, to make an MP3, an encoder compares a larger audio file to a mathematical model of the gaps in human hearing. It discards the part of the audio signals that are unlikely to be audible, then reorganizes uh, repetitive and re redundant data, producing a much smaller file that is easier to send through the network and easier to store on your devices. Stern's study of the MP3 is in part designed to reroute the history of digital media through the history of telephony. That's what he's really after. He argues for the importance of telephonic research into the capacities of the hearing subject to the development of networked communication and what he calls the whole swath of algorithmic culture from packet switching to DVDs and games, the protocols and routines of digital technologies. But I think Stern's account of what it means to study formats instead of media has implications beyond the study of audio and digital technology. Stern describes the development of the MP3 format as a production decision that turns on calculations about distribution and reception, reminding us that theories about markets and about the perceptual ca capacities of audiences are built into production practices. That's, that's the point that I want to make using Stern. His insistence on the MP3 format's anticipation of the conditions of its reception zeroes in on the aspect of culture that has proved most difficult for book historians to conceptualize, and that's circulation. Despite the fact that the discipline, book history, was founded by an article that sought to pull scattered historical disciplines into a communication circuit, do I have that as a slide? No, I skipped it, that's good. Uh, somebody once said it's not a book history talk if you don't have a communication circuit, but I, I skipped it. Uh, book history has largely settled, I think, at the poles of production and reception the history of publishing, and the history of reading, in part, I think, because it is easier for critics and historians to talk about agency at either end of the publication process. It's hard to talk about that middle. Stern's identification of format as a fulcrum for a more finely grained media history should remind us that bibliography has long used a cognate definition of format as a foundational analytic category. Bibliographers use the term format, as many of you know and are studying this week, to describe the relationship between the size of the paper placed on the press and the way in which type pages were laid out and paper was folded in order to produce the signatures or gatherings that make up the text block of a book. And many of you have seen these uh, uh, imposition. I like this one because it's a little less abstract. It includes the furniture, so you can see how the type pages are put together. And I like this one, too, because it gives you the sense of the three-dimensionality of the fold. Uh, but these imposition schemes are the ones you more commonly uh, see. Um, 
For bibliographers, uh, format describes a relationship between paper size and the number of leaves per sheet, which at least for books produced in the hand press period, provides a reliable shorthand description of both the size and the structure of the published book. You always talk about paper size and, uh, um, uh, and leaves per sheet, right? Crown quarto or royal octavo. It's got two, format description has two aspects to it. Unlike the larger, vaguer term medium, the bibliographer's format directs our attention to the set of choices publishers make in having a work printed, with a field of a book's potential circulation very much in mind. From a publisher's perspective, format is where economic and technological limitations meet cultural expectations. There's a decorum to format, born in part of the risk and uncertainty of publishing as a commercial venture. Particular formats get associated with particular kinds of texts, although these associations change over time. And across its history of printing and reprinting, a text might be published in a number of different formats. Indeed, mid-19th century American printers were known to sign stereotype plates with two different sets of signature marks, enabling printers to publish books from the same plates in either octavo or duodecimo format. These different book sizes and their attendant cost of production permitted publishers to target different audiences without incurring the additional expense of resetting the type. Again, many of you are more expert on these issues than I am, so you can jump in and, in the Q&A and clarify or uh, rebut this. But th this general idea that the publisher uh, is really thinking about potential readers at the moment uh, that the, the book format is being decided. Of course, identifying a book's format from the printed evidence extrapolating processes of production from the book you hold in your hand, this becomes a tricky matter for books printed in the period I'm most interested in, the machine press period, because of the introduction of non-standard paper sizes and machine paper in the form of a roll. When printed sheets are cut from a roll of paper that has been automatically fed to the press, paper size and folding patterns no longer index the way the type pages were laid out in the press. The architecture of the book you hold in your hand no longer reliably permits you to infer the printing house practices that produced it, although some experts here can probably do a better job uh, than I can. As G. Thomas Tanzel has argued, if format is to be a meaningful term to describe books printed on the, in the machine press period, it must refer to the finite number of page units on the printing press at any one time and not to the gatherings of cut and folded sheets. And yet the resonance of the bibliographic term format with Jonathan Stern's call for media historians to study smaller registers like software, uh, operating standards and codes, can, I think, help book historians do a better job of describing the complex middle ground between production and reception. For one thing, attending to format requires us to consider something less than the book as a whole. Format describes a printing house process, a set of decisions made in projecting the form of the printed work, but not the final product itself. Format is an abstraction. That's why I'm leaving this abstract version of an imposition scheme up. It's an abstraction that describes the structure of a book, but not the printed book between covers or even the text block on its way to the bindery. Format reminds us that reception is not separable from and, and subsequent to book production. We often talk about it as if the book is written, it's published, and then it's received, and, and reception is the third term in the equation. But it doesn't co come after the book is printed. Uh, uh, right? Uh, publishers theorize the potential field of a text reception with great care and urgency as they commit labor and material resources to the printing of a book. So I want to use that term format to think about what the publisher has in mind, his theories uh, about the potential audience uh, and reading from thinking, thinking about poetry in relation to that. Ima think about format as a kind of the imagined reader of the book pr production process. 
Okay, how might attending to print formats change the stories we tell or have failed to tell about 19th century American poetry? Thinking about format, format ought to help literary critics disaggregate the medium print into stern, smaller registers of analysis, giving us more nuanced accounts of the relations of printed works to their social and cultural uses. But thinking about format requires literary critics to read against the grain of our tendency to see genre first and, and format later, if at all. Right? I only have time for a few examples, so let me outline in advance some of what I hope you'll take away from them, from my barrage of slides. First, that attending to print formats can alter our sense of the history of poetic genres, giving us unexpected collocations of text. So I'll have one example of that. Second, that a literary history that tracks the relationship between form and format, rather than relying on the anthology's orderly sequence of poets and poems, this kind of literary history can broaden our assumptions about literary form. Uh, finally, that an attention to print format can change how we understand the place of poetry in the larger media ecosystem. And I can't cash that claim out here, but I can suggest a direction in which I go for that. So let me begin with a recent discovery or fascination. Many people have known about this, but I'm now obsessed with it. It was startling to me, mostly because it's a print object that falls outside the purview of both literary and bibliographic attention. Of course, bibliographers have noticed this thing. It appears, I'm sure, I haven't double-checked, in the Cambridge uh, bibliography of 19th century publishing, but you'll see that the, what it means the, uh, isn't captured uh, by that notation. Uh, in February of... Uh, 1844, this is taken from April, midway through, but in February, poet and editor N.P. Willis announced the launch of a series of shilling reprints of popular works to be published as newspaper extras and circulated to subscribers of his literary weekly, The New Mirror. Willis had multiple motivations in launching this series. You'll see it, the first one, two, three, four, uh, first three are written by Willis, then his co-editor of The Mirror, George Morris, as number four, and then we go back to two, two for Morris, uh, and then some more from Willis, right? So uh, it initially served as a vehicle for him uh, to, uh, to, pr to republish his own work, right? Uh, but he had multiple motivations in launching the series. The cheap format was designed to appeal to cash-strapped readers, and I've got some more some, uh, examples here, uh, to cash-strapped readers still recovering from the Panic of 1837. His mirror library served as a vehicle to republish a standard series of his own poetry and prose, uh, but it also helped to generate and retain subscribers for his new mirror. He it was the old mirror relaunched the, uh, before it becomes the evening mirror. Like other cheap reprint series of standard literature published in double-columned newsprint, Willis used the line between cheap print and works worth preserving, encouraging his readers to have these extras bound to create a uniform uh, library. Uh, okay. What is striking to me about the Mirror Library, however, is the generic implications of Willis's choices for this series, which as a whole focuses overwhelmingly on poetry. The, the other series that people have talked about, the New World and uh, the Brother Jonathan series, people usually talk about in terms of the novel. Uh, and really what's striking me about, and Willis is himself a poet, but the series uh, is obsessed with poetry and poetry you wouldn't expect. Take, for example, uh, and it's the first one in this list here, number eight, uh, the, this truly odd collection of poems that was retrospectively made the first of a series of reprints dubbed The Rococo. Uh, here are your poems. Joseph Rodman Drake's The Culprit Fay, John Keats's The Eve of St. Agnes, and William Mackworth Prade's Lillian. I'm just delighted that with Chip Tucker in the room, maybe there's here somebody's read Lillian. Uh, it's a very, these are very obscure. The Culprit Fay and Lillian are very obscure, but of course The Eve of St. Agnes is often uh, taught. 
Uh, I go round and round considering which of these three is the odd one out. One is an American poet, Joseph Rodman Drake. Uh, two are British. One poem is famous, the Eve of St. Agnes. Two are completely obscure. One is a late Romantic poem. Two are post-Romantic. What was Willis doing in putting these three texts together? How do these three fanciful, fanciful narrative poems, full of imaginative extravagance, lush eroticism, and a wry self-conscious knowingness, how do these together define a sensibility that Willis thinks will appeal to his readers? And how do they establish a literary genre Willis keeps coming back to as he publishes further extra numbers? Uh, what's so interesting is he publishes them without the title, these three poems without the title, The Rococo, uh, and then he continues the series with uh, uh, poems, uh, an edition of the works of Edward Coote Pinckney, a friend of Poe's, uh, George Crowley, Lee Hunt, and Thomas Hood. Uh, this is not a canon that anybody's really focused on. It's completely bizarre. A given our you know, training as American scholars of American poetry or scholars of British poetry. Print format here does not give us access to the experiences of individual readers. It certainly tells us nothing about what any of these poets, all safely dead, hoped their reception might be. But this cheap double-columned extra tells us quite a bit about what Willis thought his readers might enjoy, what he conjectured the market for poetry might bear in mid-1840s New York. And it's nothing like what we're told to expect from 21st century literary criticism, which tends to regard non-canonical American poetry and verse published in periodicals more generally as a wasteland of sentimental indulgence. But here we have a constellation of elaborate poetic texts, what Willis uh, elsewhere calls a paradise of delicious reading, offered to ordinary readers as a token perhaps of gentlemanly, of mutual gentlemanly recognition. And I've got a few more uh, of his uh, Profuse, uh, uh, you know, is waxing forth on the wonders of this particular volume. In its insistence on the democratic availability of poetic refinement, formerly only available to the upper classes, the Rococo number one prompts me to ask anew what is a democratic poem? After Whitman, we have understood a democratic poem to be one that represents or addresses the common man, or one that comes to grips in some ways with democratic modes of governance. But perhaps we ought to extend this definition to poetry and print formats that redistribute the privileges of the gentry to a wider circle of readers. Do we really know what we're doing when we assume a volume like this can't be interesting in cultural historical terms? So that's my first example of format leading me to raise questions about genre, uh, questions that are lasting. Uh, I mean, really, it's sent me on a wild goose chase around the American publication of Prague, which is uh, it's published much more widely in the U.S. Uh, in the 50s and 60s than it is in Great Britain. For my second example of format's ability to alter the stories we tell about American poetry, I'll draw on the archive I've been compiling of fake urban printed ballads as opposed to genuine folk orally transmitted ones. Right? I'm clearly in the territory of the fake here. And I want to make uh, three connected points. Uh, first, that print format can come to carry the impress of poetic genre. Uh, second, that the ballad's power to conjure the scene of its own transmission helps to mediate other forms of popular culture. And finally, that the close link between the ballad form and the broadside format retains the power to reclassify poems, to detach them from one system of literary value and confer upon them a kind of authorless authority. And that authorless authority is very interesting to American 
uh, poets who work in the ballad format. And one example I'll give without going into it is Whitman writes a poem that he, in a, I think 1860, retrospectively calls Boston Ballad uh, about the rendition of Anthony Burns. Uh, and uh, again, Whitman, famous for writing in non-metrically regular verse, if you look at the uh, first two lines, uh, uh, to get betimes to Boston Town, I, I went. To get to betimes to Boston Town, I went to something early. It reads in perfect ballad meter. It's you know a kind of nod to the form. It's spoken from the position of a Jonathan, an ordinary American. So this idea that the ballad uh, carries with it an anonymity, a generic nature, and the the voice from below is very live for American poets. Ballads appear in just about every print medium in the antebellum period, from the cheapest broadsides in newspapers to elegant multi-volumed collections designed for the drawing room. The ballad's omnipresence, however, has paradoxically kept it outside the balance, bounds of nationally framed, author-centered, Americanist literary study, frequently anonymous, foreign in origin, feudal in theme and setting, and dependent on heightened forms of repetition and refrain, ballads are assumed to be not proper to the literature of a modern nation. And yet, as Susan Stewart has argued, antiquarian and scholarly collections of ballads gave credence to the very idea of a national literature, and helped to establish the working premises of formal literary study. The Chatterton exhibit outside is a great example of that, the antiquarian rush to authenticate ballads um, uh, being bound up with the idea of uh, British prehistory. Um, okay, uh, Stewart shows how the ballad's imaginary achronicity, it stands prior to and outside of literary time, enabled the theorization of literary periods, while the British scandals of ballad forgery helped to produce consensus about the rules of authentication and the stylistic hallmarks of literary texts. In the United States, the pre-literary status of the ballad transforms it into a possible solution to the vexing problem of literary culture in a republic. The ballad's privileged relation, the ballad form's privileged relation to the voice of the people makes it particularly attractive to poets who trade on its authorless authority to imagine a democratic poetry. That the ballad carries with it an account of its own circulation, uh, a fantasy of face-to-face -face exchange and local or communal significance, also proves important to American poets, editors, and publishers. The strong link between the ballad form and the broadside format encouraged them to elaborate fantasies of poetic transmission. Uh, I, can, I can talk more about that later. I've eliminated some of these slides in the interest of time. Uh, broadsides were more, than, more, however, than an atavistic survival of early modern culture. They continued to play a role in the busy mediascape of the mid-19th century, remediating other forms of mass culture. And here I'll just give you my favorite example of this. This is a, uh, uh, a ballad. Uh, it may take you a while to figure out Little Nell, Little Nell the heroine of the old. Uh, it's a remediation of the old curiosity shop <laughs> um, as, a, as a poem, uh, right? Um, uh, right? Uh, um, uh, so it, it, it's another form of mass culture, the novel remediated as a broadside ballad, or quite frequently uh, uh, um, the broadside is used to advertise and sell songs that are performed at the public theater, and indeed this one may be related to a performance of the old curiosity shop as a play. Um, uh, the, ba the ballad, uh, the broadside format retained, uh, or, and, and poems printed on uh, broadsides retained through their strong association with news, <laughs> satire and popular opinion, they retained the air of circulation below or beyond official channels, the commercial afterlife of legitimate literary culture, the ungovernable field of popular circulation itself. In the following sequence of slides, and I'll run through them quickly, you'll get the idea, I'm going to quickly sketch the fate of Thomas Dunn English's wildly popular ballad, Ben Bolt, a poem that was first printed in the New Mirror, uh, the 
the journal that Willis's uh, uh, Literary Weekly um, that I was just giving you some examples of his, the, the Mirror Library. So it's first published in the New Mirror. It's subsequent, subsequently set to music, uh, and then it gets recirculated on broadsides as a faux oldie, and that's with an E, popular song. So let me just give you some of these. Here's its appearance in the New Mirror, and you can see we have the gentlemanly quasi-anonymity of TDE, Thomas Dunn English at the bottom. Uh, right, so we can we can find the author. It's signed, but it's not uh, announced. Uh, Rufus Wilmot Griswold includes it in the Poets and Poetry of America, that landmark anthology, uh, as the as uh, Thomas Dunn English's signature poem. So obviously, his authorship is pretty well known. Uh, and competing musical, uh, uh, there are competing musical settings of the poem that create a little plagiarism controversy in the journal. So, so far, so good. Uh, ben Bolt, a fake ballad, a fake oldie ballad that's part of middle class uh, culture. But then things get a little wild. Um, broadside publishers start reprinting it without uh, the name attached. Uh, but there are all kinds of parodies. Do you, uh, right? the, the key beginning is, do you remember Sweet Alice Ben Bolt, Sweet Alice with Hair So Brown? Uh, right? It's a sort of a poem about memory and uh, death and memory. Uh, so then we've got here the tune, this Cottage by the Hill. Do you remember Nellie Dear? It scans badly, uh, but set to the tune of Ben Bolt. Uh, and then we get response poems, Ben Bolt's Grave. By the side of Sweet Alice, they've laid Ben Bolt. Uh, uh, yes, I remember an answer to Ben Bolt. Uh, notice we've lost, somewhere in here, pretty early, we've lost uh, uh, Thomas Don English entirely. Uh, yes, I remember. Uh, and then we get some hilarious parodies. They're not at the Poppers. Oh, don't you remember the Poppers, Tom Brown, the Poppers who ain't got no dough. Uh, ben Ellis, a parody on Ben Bolt, making fun of its sentimentality. We get, I don't know how they stretch that little ballad out to an evening theatrical, but we get an entire <laughs> evening of entertaining, thrilling uh, amusing incident. I don't know how they did it. And finally, the piece de resistance, we have a racehorse named Ben Bolt. Uh, it's such a, such a common uh, part of American popular culture. So if Ben Bolt begins as legitimate literary culture, its unauthorized circulation in broadside form transports the poem outside of recognizably literary precincts. The broadside ballads convention of anonymity, that convention that's associated with the format and the form in different ways, allows for the stripping of English's name from the song. Indeed, this ballad might have been lost in the morass of antebellum popular culture, if not, and I wonder if anybody remembers this, it's in, if not for its resurrection in uh, Du Maurier's popular gothic novel Trilby, this is the song the working girl diva sings terribly off-key when her hypnotist husband Svengali dies suddenly of apoplexy. So we go, go from, this is, I think, a, a, an idea of what mid-century American sentimentality sounds like from the vantage point of the late 19th century's imaginary bohemia. Uh, so Ben Bolt has a star turn in Trilby. In the case of Ben Bolt, the broadside's conventional anonymity and impersonality strips the poem of its authorship and its gentility, keeping the song alive, but no longer uh, in the possession of Thomas Dunn English. Uh, these broadsides testify to the vitality of 19th century popular poetry at the intersection of print and oral culture. Tracing the, uh, the conjoined histories of the ballad form and the broadside format gives us, I think, greater purchase on how the material aspects of a poem's circulation shapes the history of its reception and on how the broadside format comes to carry a spec set of expectations as to the cultural status of what's printed on its face. In closing, I want to turn to an example I've published on, so, so I can do this kind of quickly and send you to my article if you've got more questions or talk about it. Uh, this is an example I've written about elsewhere uh, to suggest what critics have to gain by reading for format along with reading for form and genre. 
When I began working on African-American poet Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, I was surprised to find that what the scholarship refers to as her early books of poetry are actually small pamphlets or chapbooks. Their print format broadcasting conditions of circulation and assumptions about the cultural role of poetry quite different from those I had imagined for them. In hindsight, I could have teased out many of these differences from a careful reading of the excellent bibliographies, but I failed somehow to take the measure of these details. I couldn't conjure the difference format makes from brief descriptions of these volumes or from the two-dimensional PDFs on my computer screen. And I think format is badly remediated uh, in our uh, digital databases, the sense of heft uh, uh, and size. It's, it's alterable, right? The very thing that broadcasts the limitations of the press is the thing that you can alter digitally, uh, and you lose the specificity of format. So I'll just give you uh, some slides to compare here. Compare, for instance, Harper's Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects. It was printed and, uh, and reprinted numerous times from 1854 to 1874. Compare this to Harper's Poems, published in 1895 and, uh, and 1900. And then I'll, so you can take a look at those. We'll go back to these. Sorry for the moving pieces. Uh, the 1857 Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects, like nearly all of Harper's printed work through the 1880s, is more of a pamphlet than a book. It's comprised of three signatures, initially 48 pages, sewn in a stab binding with a pasted-on paper cover. Published in small print runs and successive batches to be sold at her anti-slavery lectures, with no copyright notice overleaf and no price on it, right, so the price was variable. Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects bears in its format the traces of a strong relationship to oral performance to the punctual meetings of reformers bent on miscellaneous reforms that were brought under the umbrella of anti-slavery, and also to the songs that were sung and the songsters that provided a, uh, a text held in common at these meetings. The 1895 poems, however, by contrast, with its, with its floral image, illustrated cloth cover, three-quarters length author photo, facsimile signature, and copyright registration, uh, these books mobilize a different set of expectations as to what will be found in its pages. Uh, suggesting parlor display rather than activist uses, individual authorship and silent reading instead of collective performance. Critical editions of Harper's work, and these are a couple of pages from Mary Emma Graham's edition, critical editions of Harper's work treat these books as items in a series comprised of essentially the same things. They are books of poetry. Uh, the differences literary critics take care to account for and to remark on are predominantly verbal ones. The field of differences between and among printed texts gets rendered as linguistic, formal, and sequential variation. While a book history approach to Harper's writing would surely take note of these radical differences in format, these differences would likely be normalized by being placed along the de developmental arc of the poet's career, rather than allowing differences in format to open up questions about the relationships of these collections of poems to the other kinds of texts published in similar format. So I've gone back to Harper's publishers and looked at everything published in a similar size and shape. And surprise, surprise, they turn out to be uh, printed texts that variously index oral performance, sermons, political and commemorative addresses, convention speeches, academic lectures, congressional speeches, government testimony, uh, and essays on reform, personal narratives, and amateur scientific essays. Those stray a little bit from oral performance, uh, but they have strong uh, relationships uh, to the lecture circuit, for instance. Harper's work brings me back to the question of medium. I read the peculiar forms of address in her poems as bound up with the print mediation of oral performance but I couldn't have perceived or would have misperceived the complex play of morality and print in her work without the intermediate analytic framework of format. 
So I want to conclude this evening both by ratifying the bibliographic call for specificity and precision in describing printed objects and by encouraging fellow literary critics to permit their assumptions about the histories of poetry to be altered by the bibliographic gaze. Who knows what we haven't been seeing because we've been reading past format to get to form and genre. Thanks very much. I'm happy to take questions, corrections, rebuttals, uh, anything. Suggestions of things to read on Lillian. A fantastic medieval, quasi-medieval uh, narrative poem. Uh, only Susan Wolfson is the only person I've found who talks about it. She tells us something. Yes. Fascinating. Control over the circulation itself. Yeah, I mean, I do think that one of the profound, particularly amongst British and European writers, when they looked at the United States, because of the lack of international copyright law, or as I like to refer to it, the resistance to international copyright, they regarded you know, the U.S. as a pirate nation and the field of mass circulation as, as ungovernable, fundamentally ungovernable. Uh, exciting, because it sort of gave them a sense of of, of what an audience, an unplanned for audience might look like, uh, right? So I do think British authors were proud of their American circulation, even as they wished to have more money, although plenty of money did come, plenty of money did come back to them and payments for advance sheets and things like that. So yeah, the idea of the link of mesmerism to, to mass media itself, I mean, that would link back to a whole bunch of novels that have mesmerists in them. I'm thinking here of Henry James's uh, uh, Bostonians, uh, of course, where we've got a mesmeric figure as that... Uh, link between abolition uh, and uh, the post-war uh, literary culture. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't thought enough about, about uh, Trilby, but that's a great, great hint. Um, yeah, circulation you can't control. Um. Yes? Is the canon, particularly of British poetry, that emerges from the mirror hmm. uh, that wacky it's crazy. I'm glad you think so too. Is that is that in any way format explicable, or is it just loony? Or, or crazy Willis and Willis's idea? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I really see it as Willis's projection. So I'm again, format's giving me position, permission to think about Willis's ideas about a market. Although he claims that they sell out um, and that they're tremendously popular, um, I actually think it becomes the other. And because I'm at uh, UVA, I want to mention the, the name Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, in 1844, Poe is working for Willis at the Mirror, and you know I was thinking, could could, could I write an article called American Rococo, you know, just taking that genre and running with it, and see, and all of a sudden I'm thinking Lygia, I'm thinking about the medievalist prose, I'm thinking of some of Poe's poems as well. Uh, I do actually think you could, as a generic tag, uh, there are all these fake gentlemen in in Poe's writing, right? I mean, he couldn't afford. Uh, to keep copies of his own books, and he started a series called Marginalia that was that reported to be the the writings, uh, his gentlemanly scribbles on the margins of his vast collection of books. Uh, I, I do think that there is uh, a lot of play around gentlemanly, second tier, cheap gentlemanliness 
uh, in the subscriber base of the Mirror and what literary culture meant in New York in, in the mid-1840s to people like Willis. So, shabby genteel. Sh- yeah, shabby genteel, but also a, a kind of épaté le bourgeois, or the English, you know, you have gentlemen in England, but we've got this vibrant, uncontrollable periodical culture, and we can have it too, uh, right? Uh, we don't have formal education, we're clerks. Uh, but we can read, you know, and in fact, Trade, a lot of his work is in the periodicals and, and Hood, a lot of those, a lot of those volumes, I can, I can go back to that slide and you can look at, um, sorry, I have to keep going back through all those Ben Bolts. Um, that's, you know, uh, a lot of these things, the National Airs, Legendary Ballads, Ballads and Miscellaneous, what is that number, 13, from the Bard of Poor Jack, uh, um, Sands of gold sifted from the flood of fugitive literature. I mean, he's mining British periodical culture and coming up with these book-like objects, these, you know, this cheap print that could be bound to make a uniform library. Uh, but I do see it as democratizing access to a literary culture that's thought to be beyond Americans or, or working people. Um, you know, I, I should do a little bit more work on how, whether his claims of selling out the Rococo really are true. I don't know how I do that. Look at other uh, commentary on the Rococo. But I guess I'm starting to think it's a real thing. Um, writer, I'm interested in the extent to which it could describe uh, a style and a framework for the circulation of poetry. Um, and that if you connect it to, to, to Poe's Gothicism, you've got something that's bigger. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Like newspapers or like the Scriveners or something where it's like poetry butting up against nonfiction butting up against fiction. And wondering like to, the, to what degree maybe that like ends up shaping kind of our generic reception of those poems. Of those like, poems? poems seem more sentimental because it's next to, you know, like reportage about a natural disaster. Right, yeah, in, in cheap print in general. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I think there's a difference between the the period I'm most interested in, like the 30s and the 40s, yeah. up until the early 50s, and when literary culture gets organized on a more steeply hierarchical plane, uh, and, and people start making money and complaining about scribbling women and, and that sort of thing. You know, 1850s, things change. That's, there's a reason why we have the American Renaissance there, and then Scribner's in the later would be a different context. Yeah. Um, uh, but I guess I'm struck by, in the 40s, the, the ladies' magazines, uh, I should have a slide of this, I've got it somewhere buried in my computer, they lead with the names of the poets. Right, which is to say that poetry still has a kind of cultural cachet that I think pub- um, publishers of mag periodicals think will lift the quality of their journal. We read past it because we 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 flipped the hierarchy of genres. But if you try to get into an 1830s 40s mindset, you can see that um, epigraphs to novels, you know, the epigraphs there to raise the cultural status of the novel. It's not something just to be skipped over. Uh, so I'm very interested in the juxtaposition of poetry and prose, but I do think the postbellum period is radically different uh, than the antebellum period in that regard. And then you'd, you'd want to think about uh, the, the, where the periodicals themselves stand in the hierarchy of, of print genres. That idea that literary genres and print genres have a relationship that we need to query. Um, uh, it's not necessarily set in stone, and it changes over time. But uh, yeah, so yes, but I don't know anything about Scribner's, <laughs> so I can't give a bit more specific. Uh, answer there. Yes. Jenny. I'm interested in, and this is sort of an extension of what you're saying, but 
Yeah, the, the collection of mirror extras at the Antiquarian Society is bound, although I don't know the history of that binding, and I should ask about that. Uh, Willis talks, uh, he comes back to you know, advertise his series, and he talks about being thrilled when he, had, when he has enough, published enough extras to bind together as a miscellany. Um, that's here. And the best fugitive literature we can choose or procure. Oh, no, it's the other way. It's this one. Um, a word as to binding up the mirror library in the second column. Some may object to having works of different character in one volume, too eclectic. Uh, such have only to wait till we have issued enough of either kind to bind separately. You could have a set of the Rococos or a set of the sacred poetry or the tales of future literature, right? So he, there is a patter about binding. Uh, and again, early on, uh, I, I think it's in, in, maybe it's here. He talks about having enough. He's so thrilled to have enough to bind as one volume. But he, again, he does imagine here, at least explicitly, that people might bind them up differently. Right, know, right. Like right. Yeah. Like differently. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this is a, the the order of binding is impossible is is variable enough that when you read uh, the Antiquarian Society's digital version because it's their collection has a digital version of these extras digitized version but you can't tell what order they were bound in that. You know, you have to actually go to the physical copy at the AAS to figure out what that order is, um, and it's not the order. It took me forever. I was asking Vince. I was there last week. Going, what's the? What's the? You know, it took me forever to find the list, um, uh, and it's a complete list of the fifty. Um, so this is just the top of that list, two-page list. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is those are settings that people try to copyright the settings. You know, musical publishers try to copyright those settings, which suggests a different economy than the economy of ballad song, uh, where you just have a, no, you know, a note of the tune and you know what it is. And of course, ballad meter enables some of those tunes to be interchangeable. Um, uh, so yeah, that, so that the sheet music signals an attempt to make, make this more genteel. Uh, but I, what's interesting to me is it rapidly subsides into this other economy of, of broadside ballads. Uh, uh, Absolutely, to sell, to sell the lyrics, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the ballad seller is a really interesting figure, a figure of distribution of circulation, uh, who in some, some accounts of the, of the 19th century ballad, the ballad hawker sort of takes over the position of, of author, in a sense, uh, a distributor uh, as author. Um, yeah, absolutely. <coughs> Oh, thank um, you. We have a little, this is not quite a ballad. Um, oh, well, it is. That's a musical uh, setting. Time, of a, of a, yes, of a, um, another musical setting. Oh, and, thank you so much. It's lovely. And um, a note of thanks from all of us. So thanks thank very you. much again. And I hope. Thank you. Thank you for being here.
That's lovely. Refreshments um, and for more conversation about her extremely um, wonderful talk that we heard tonight. Thank, Thank you. you so much.